Welcome to the Siskiy Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. As we just continue to make our way through this, this letter of correction that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's writing this letter of correction because, well, their church is a, a mess. It's a disaster. And they have all sorts of issues and troubles and problems that are, are causing uh, quite a, a mess. And, you know, they were saved, the church of Corinth. I, I want to remind us that, you know, this church was planted in a very godless, very immoral, very carnal, very pagan culture. And so as we look at this letter of correction, and we can't look at this letter of correction without also saying, wow, Lord, what an amazing thing it is that you've done in the city of Corinth, that you have taken and, and saved these people. What, what a wonderful example of the power of God. And you know what? Honestly, I can relate to that. I think many of us can. Like, Lord, how good are you to save us out of our situations, to, to bring salvation into our lives? And, and so... Uh, the church at Corinth, although they had lots of trouble, lots of it was based on the, the culture they were saved out of, man, it would be, be nice, wouldn't it, if they just got saved and then lived happily ever after. Like, if they just got saved and all right, they just, they never dealt with sin again. It would be nice if that was the case in our lives, that after we got saved, just like, all right, never have to deal with sin ever again. Now, I'm so glad that when we got saved, the power of sin was broken in our lives, I'm so glad that when we got saved, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven, washed by the blood of the Lamb. But it would be so nice if we didn't have to deal with this carnal flesh anymore. If we could just move on in victory for the rest of our lives. Uh, but, you know, it's just not the way that it is. And that can be very frustrating, but I'm glad that God is not done with us. And as we look at this corrective letter to the Corinthians... You know, one of my, you know, prayers for us is, Lord, you know, don't let us be uh, those who fall into this trap of, of condemnation, who hear this letter of, of correction and get so beat up by the enemy that we get discouraged. And I just want to remind you guys before we launch out into chapter six this morning that, you know, God is doing a work in your life and he's doing a work in my life. And that work that he's doing in our lives, it takes time. The classic example of sanctification that I love to use is the nation of Israel. You know, it only took a couple days for God to get his people out of Egypt, right? Uh, a couple plagues, parting of the Red Sea, bada bing, bada boom, let's go. They didn't even have time to, to let their dough rise. But it took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of his people. A couple days to get his people out of Egypt, but 40 years. And what does 40 years represent? 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. That represents an entire generation. And so remember that this work of sanctification that's taking place in our lives, this process whereby God is working things into our lives that ought to be there, this process whereby he's working things out of our lives that shouldn't be there, man, it really is a lifelong process. And I don't say that to encourage us to sin, right? It's not a pass to sin. It really is an encouragement to look back at your life. Look how far the Lord has brought you. 
It's an encouragement to, to stay the course and trust the Lord and, and to, to walk in obedience to him because some of this correction that continues in Corinth, man, some of this correction, it hits a square. I mean, some of the things that Paul is saying, hey, listen, Church of Corinth, you guys are out of line and this is how you need to fix that. And if you don't, these are the consequences. Some of those corrections, man, it, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable. But I'm so glad that we serve a Lord who cares more about our eternal welfare than he does our present comfort. And so it, although it might be a bit uncomfortable, man, it's so important to keep us from getting sucked into the world. It helps us keep our focus on the Lord and what he has for us. And so I'm glad for it. And so uh, chapter six, uh, you know, Paul has already addressed many of the issues that the church of Corinth is dealing with their spiritual immaturity, their divisions, uh, they're being puffed up with pride. And then in chapter 5, last week, we saw that there was this particular issue that the church at Corinth was going through that was really giving Christianity a, a black eye. It was giving the Lord a black eye. It was kind of ruining their witness uh, to the lost people in the, the city of Corinth. And that issue was that there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his... Uh, his stepmom. Yeah, that sounds so disgusting because it is. Uh, and he was doing this just unapologetically, unrepentantly. And the, the church there at Corinth, they refused to deal with it. They, they didn't deal with it at all. They, they said, hey, no problem. Actually, you know what? They kind of embraced him in the name of tolerance and in love. And it was ruining their witness, the, the outside world we read in uh, chapter 5. The, 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 the people in Corinth, and like we talked about on Sunday, remember, Corinth was a city that was saturated with sex. Even that city, who was immersed in sexual immorality, looked at what was going on inside the church and said, those people are disgusting. That is, that is gross. And so it was uh, really ruining their witness there in Corinth. They're, they're wanting to be tolerant to this guy and his sexual immorality. By the way, did anybody see the, the commercial on the Super Bowl, the Jesus Gets Us commercial? Very interesting. Anybody have any? I mean, yeah, I, I hope you guys caught that. I hope you saw that and said, wait a second, that's not the real gospel, right? And the, the premise of this commercial was just like the church at Corinth, where they're saying, Jesus gets you. Come in with your sin. It's going to be all right. It's, but Jesus doesn't get us. Jesus saves us so he can transform us. That's the work that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians, that Jesus didn't save you to leave you where you were. He saved us to, to change us. But uh, this, this whole situation, this, this issue with this man, his stepmother, and all this disgusting thing, it wasn't the only thing that the community was abuzz about. And so this is, Paul is kind of addressing the church and saying, hey, listen, and I, I'm hearing it from, from sources from, from Chloe and her family, and that the community is looking in at the church like you guys are a bunch of heathens, like you're worse than, than the rest of the world. And this whole uh, encounter with this man was an issue, but another issue that the church is dealing with that Paul is going to address tonight that caught the attention of the outside world, that caught the attention of uh, the, the unbelievers, was the issue of just this constant bickering. There were lawsuits that were going on. The, the members of the church were suing each other left and right in secular courts in front of the world. And really, it was, uh, again, one of those things that was ruining their witness. Uh, the, the church leadership there at Corinth 
they refused to deal with any of the issues that were coming up. And so as a result, boy, the, the, the congregation was taking their matters to the secular courts. And it was, there were ridiculous, petty lawsuits. And so uh, Paul is going to deal with that issue tonight, with all of these lawsuits and things going on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. Paul says, There any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man, or is it so that there is not a wise man among you? Uh, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. See, that's, that's Paul's bone to pick again, is that they're doing this before unbelievers. But Paul starts off this uh, chapter, he says, you know, dare any of you, dare any of you take these, these lawsuits, dare, dare any of you having a manner against one another go to law, uh, to the courts of the unrighteous? Paul kind of pulls a, a Greta Thunberg's, how dare you? How dare you guys? That's kind of like what he's saying. How dare you guys do this thing? And really, it's, it's laughable when we put it that way, but it's very stern language. Paul means business. He says, how dare you guys do this? And this stern language indicates that this is a big issue for us and that we should listen up. He says, don't you guys know? Don't you guys know that you're going to judge the world? Don't you guys know that you're going to judge angels? Don't you guys know that you have the capacity, the capability uh, the, the guidelines in the scriptures to, to judge all of these things for yourselves? Paul says, don't you know? In other words, you should know. Paul is not coming down on them for something that they just didn't know. Paul's saying, you guys should know how to deal with this. You guys should be appointing men to help sort these issues out, uh, but they weren't. And you got to remember that one of the issues that the Corinthian church dealt with was their pride. They were puffed up. They thought they knew everything. And because they thought they knew everything, they missed some of the simplest spiritual truths. See, that's what pride does. Pride puffs us up. It blinds us to the truth. And so they were oblivious to the obvious. And I pray that that would never be the case with us, that we would miss out on such simple biblical solutions to glaring problems. But, but Paul here, in these few verses, he's going to say, let me lay down some spiritual truth here. Let me show you how to fix this problem. And really, uh, again, uh, this is one of the reasons that I love the Bible. Because it doesn't matter if we're dealing with raising kids. It doesn't matter if we're dealing with employees or employers or money issues or whatever it is. We can look to the scriptures and we can find what we're to do. And Paul says, hey, in this matter of settling issues within the family of Christ, hey, keep it in the family. Paul says, man, don't go to the, the secular courts. They can't help you. They don't understand. But, but keep it in the family. This is a family matter. Why are matters within the church, disputes amongst church members, why is that an internal issue that we are to deal with as a church family. Well, first of all, Paul says, hey, do this stuff internally. Don't air your dirty laundry to the unbelieving world, right? Because 
uh, it, it blows uh, their witness. And here's the other thing, is that the church at Corinth, they were already dealing with division. Remember, that was one of the first things that Paul addressed, that there were those who were, uh, you know, pledging their allegiance to Paul. And there was part of the church that was saying, oh no, we are going to, to pledge our allegiance to Apollos. And then part of the church was pledging their allegiance to, to Peter. They were broken up into these different groups. And so division was already a, a huge issue. And the problem with a divided church, as we've talked about in the past, is that a divided church is a distracted church. Uh, a divided church happens when we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto each other. And, you know, here's the thing. If we were to gather together in this room and we're to just sit around for an hour every Wednesday night and just kind of examine each other's lives, boy, we would be at each other's throats before too long. It won't take you very long to look into my life and find something to be offended at. I guarantee it. Uh, but before you, you know, break your arm patting yourself on the back, it wouldn't take me very long to find something in your life that offends me either. It's because it's our carnal nature. But we didn't gather together here to evaluate and look at each other's lives, do we? No, we gathered here to come and worship the Lord, to have our eyes fixed on him, the author and the finisher of our faith, to worship him and to learn of him. And when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, man, our, our issues, they really do sort themselves out. But a divided church, man, is a distracted church. And the, the Corinthians, they had their eyes on each other. They were offended. They were nitpicking instead of keeping their eyes on, on the Lord. And, uh, you know, you can only look at one thing at a time. Right? You can't have your eyes fixed on Jesus and somebody else at the same time. Have you ever tried when you were a kid? to look at two different things at the same time. I don't think it's possible. It's not possible for me. I tried it again today just to verify. I can only look at one thing at a time. But it's the truth. If we have our eyes fixed horizontally, we'll be missing out on what the Lord has for us uh, vertically. Secondly, a distracted church is, or a divided church is not only a distracted church, but a divided church is an uh, ineffective church. And I think that really is what Paul is getting at here. Their division with their petty arguments, their division with their, you know, their lawsuits, they're consumed with self-vindication and justification and defending their position and their thing and arguing and, and, and their offenses. Uh, you know, they weren't doing what they were called to do. They were wasting all of their time barking at each other. And they were missing out on their calling. What did the Lord call the church at Corinth to do? The same thing that he's called us to do. To be his witnesses. To be his ambassadors. To be his representatives in a, a, a land that we don't belong to. That's what an ambassador is. We have ambassadors all over the world. And they're representatives of the United States to represent uh, our interests and who we are but we are the ambassadors of Christ in this world to represent our Lord and Savior. You know, uh, we're to be the salt, salt and light of the earth. That, that's our mission as the church, to, to make people thirsty for Jesus. We are to be the light of the world, to, to shine the light. The world walks in darkness. Uh, Proverbs 4 
Verse 19 says, the way of the wicked is darkness. They don't even know what makes them stumble. Right? The world is tripping over all sorts of wickedness, and we have the answer. We have the light. We can say, hey, look, follow us. And that's the way that it's always been. That's always been God's plan for his people, and it started with Israel. In Isaiah chapter 49, God says this about Israel. He says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And the idea with Israel, way back in the Old Testament, is that they would be God's special people, that they would have this unique relationship with the Lord, and it would be so wonderful that the nations around them would look and say, hey, I want a piece of that action. I want what that little nation has, this relationship with the true and living God. Same is true for us. We are to be the salt and the light and good ambassadors that the, the community in Wairika would look in at Siskiyou Christian Fellowship and be like, man, I want what those people have. That the lost world would look in at the church and say, man, they have what I'm longing for. They have what I am missing. But so often, the world looks in at the church and says, well, man, if that's what Christianity is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass. That's a hard no for me. And what did Jesus say? He said, the world will know that we belong to him, that we will, the world will know that we are his disciples. How? Because of our extreme Bible knowledge, because of our, our, our pious attitude towards sin, by our eloquent prayers that we offer up or our good deeds. John 13, 35 says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Paul says, man, this whole thing that you guys are, are, are doing these, these lawsuits that you're bringing to the secular courts, man, it's not good. You guys are, are, are blowing your witness in the community by airing your dirty laundry in these petty issues. But not only that, he says, you guys are capable. He says, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? Don't you guys know that you're going to judge the angels? He says, the saints, the saints are going to judge the world. The saints are going to judge the angels. Who are the saints? Them. Us, we are the saints. So that means that we are going to someday judge the world. That means that we someday are going to judge the angels. So wait a second, what, what is this all about? When is this? This speaks of a period of a time yet to come. This speaks of the millennial reign. This thousand-year period that is in the future, a thousand-year period of peace and prosperity, and the Bible describes it in such a beautiful way that, that the, the lion will lay with the lamb. The kids will play with the vipers, and, and it won't be anything. They won't be worried about getting bit by poisonous snakes. It won't even affect them. That there will be such peace and prosperity that will take all of our weapons of war, and we will turn them into uh, implements for, for farming. The millennial reign, it's going to be this wonderful period that is yet to come. But where does that go? And so I just want to take a minute. So how does this all fit in? Like when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? A quick timeline overview, right? Where are we? Where does the millennial reign fit in? It's in the future, but, but where in the future? So if we just start with today and we look at the world around us, man, you don't need me to stand up here and tell you that things are going from bad to worse. You don't need me to tell you that the world is going from order to disorder, that with every passing day, there's more and more chaos that ensues. 
And really, our trajectory is destruction. I mean, you look around and see what's going on in the world of politics, in our cultures in the way of morality, in our cultures in the way of violence. I mean, just this week, there was two more shootings. There's another church shooting at Joel Olstein's church. Crazy situation. And then I think it was today. It was today at the, the parade, the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City. Somebody starts just opening fire. And, you know, we'll hear all the same arguments. Oh, we got to get guns out of the community and everything else. And here's the thing. There's tons of guns in the community 50 years ago and hardly any mass shootings. It's just a sign of, of the times. It's our culture where it doesn't bother an individual to walk into a celebration and just open fire. That's a morality problem, not a gun problem. But, but we see that the world, man, it's on this fast track to destruction. And even the, the world admits this truth. How many movies do we have about the end of the world? As it gets closer, it's like, oh, what's it going to be? Uh, it's going to be a, another meteor or a crazy, you know, global weather crisis or a pandemic. Or There's movie after movie after movie. But for us, we don't have to wonder how everything's going to end. We don't have to wonder, uh, you know, how things are going to turn out. We know that the sickness and the sin and the degeneration and the wickedness uh, in which we live of this world, it's building to a crescendo, that we are headed for judgment. And that judgment is called, in the Bible, the tribulation. We read about that in Revelation. This, this seven-year time period of hell on earth, where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. And I really believe that, man, we're, we're getting close to that. You, you look at all the signs of the times. You look at what's going on in uh, the world concerning Bible prophecy. And you say, man, we are getting close to that. And we don't have time tonight to really unpack uh, a lot of Bible prophecy. But Jesus told us in Matthew 24, he said, man, the disciples said, Lord, when is the end going to be? And Jesus told them in Matthew 24, he said, uh, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and, and uh, will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. The uh, end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All these things at the beginning of SARS. So Jesus mentions these things that are, are commonplace. Wars and pestilence and, and earthquakes and all the rest. But the key to that is that this is the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of, of birth pangs. These are birth pangs. And anybody who's gone into labor, praise the Lord, I've never gone into labor, and I never will go into labor. I don't care what the world tells you. Men cannot get pregnant. When you go into labor, those labor pains happen with increasing frequency and intensity. And that's what we see with these, these naturally occurring events, uh, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. It's not that they are new, but they're happening with greater frequency and intensity. Uh, they're birth pangs. And we see that by every metric that, that we look at, man, things are ramping up. Uh, you know, the Bible says that it, Jesus goes on. I mean, he says that it would be like the days of Noah. What defined the days of Noah? I mean, great godlessness and perversion. We look around at our culture, at the world, and we're getting further and further away from God, not closer and closer to God. Uh, we see all through Daniel, 
right? In Daniel, uh, the very beginning of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, we have this, this story where King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, there's this, this giant image, multi-metallic image with the head of gold and the shoulders and arms of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of clay and iron mixed. And this whole vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar has, you know, Daniel has the interpretation and all of these different metals represent different world powers. Uh, the, the gold head was the Babylonians and then the shoulders and the arms that were silver were the Medes and the Persians and the belly of bronze was the Greeks and the, the legs of iron were the, the, the Romans and then the feet that were mixed of clay and iron, that's yet to come, that's, that's future. And then you have Daniel's 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And this, all these parameters that need to happen that lead up to the end of time. And 69 of those weeks are fulfilled perfectly. There's one week, a seven-year period left. And see, it's interesting. You take those two prophecies and you lay them over each other and there's this pause button, right? In the, 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 the Daniel story with the, 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 the statue, there's the, Medes, or the, there's the Babylonians and then there's the Medes and Persians and then there's the Greeks and then there's the Romans. Pause button. See, we've seen all of those nations rise and fall. And then there's a pause button. Just like in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, there's the 69 weeks, and then there's a pause button. When does that pause button happen? When Jesus leaves, is crucified. When does the play button get started again on prophetic events? When Jesus comes back to get us. And you see, that jump starts everything. And the last part of Daniel, you see this rock cut without hands that is a picture of Jesus dashing down the, that statue, including the world power that is yet to come, the, the feet that are iron and clay mixed. And then that last week period in Daniel's uh, prophecy of the 70 weeks, that is the tribulation period. And so we look at those prophecies and see all of this has passed. There's one little sliver left to fulfill. Uh, further on in Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, uh, Daniel, you know, he's like, well, when is this for? All these things that I'm writing prophetically, I, I don't get it. And Daniel's told, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, when many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, I can't imagine, there's never been a time in world history where we've had so much knowledge. Think about the knowledge that we have access to. Every single one of us has a supercomputer in their pocket. You can look up anything. You can watch anything. You have your own TV station, basically, in your pocket. If you have a YouTube account or any other social media, you look at a graph of how knowledge has increased, and in the 21st century, it's like, <laughs> wall, straight up. Or where we go to and fro, world travel. Think about how easy it is to just travel the world. I mean, I could be in China. I mean, and I'm not sure if I'm going forward or backwards. I might be able to be in China still today if I'm going the right way. I'm not sure about that. I'm not, maybe I'd be there tomorrow or the day after. Anyways, I could just go to China if I wanted to. That hasn't always been so. And you look at all the different things. You know, all of this Bible prophecy that we, we look at, you know what's at the center of Bible prophecy? Israel. And so just a couple years ago, there were like the greatest biblical scholars saying, I don't see how any of this could work out because Israel is not even a nation. And then Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 66. 
says, can a nation be born in a day? Right? Can a nation be born in a day? Of course not. Well, actually, yes. On May 14th, 1948, a nation was born in a day. Israel was back. And we know that Israel has to be a nation with the temple up and running and all this and that. We look into the book of Revelation and we know that in the end that there is a one world government, a one world religion, that there is a, a, a one world currency. All these things need to take place in order for, and we say, wow, in our lifetimes, do you realize what a blip on the map our lifetimes are and how much has fallen to place in just our lifetime that make all of this possible? But before that great tribulation happens, something else even more important happens, and that's the rapture, right? So before this judgment comes that we're leading up to, the church gets taken out. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. We see that, uh, that, that we're caught up with the Lord. We're harpazoed. We're taken out. We don't go through that great tribulation period because we are not appointed unto God's wrath. All of God's wrath for my sin and yours was already poured out on Jesus. So where will we be during that seven-year period? We'll be in heaven with Jesus, hanging out, enjoying the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's going to be a fantastic seven-year honeymoon period. But this is where I'm going. Okay, now we're getting to where we're talking about tonight. At the end of that tribulation period, then comes the millennial reign. So we're trucking, the world's getting worse and worse and worse. Things are falling into place. The Lord snatches us out. Seven years of judgment. At the end of that seven-year judgment, the Lord returns, Revelation 19. And we see that. He comes riding on a white horse with us riding behind him. And with the sword of his mouth, he wipes out the nations of the world that stand against him. See, at the end of that seven-year period, there's a showdown between the nations of the world, their armies, and Jesus. Guess who wins? <laughs> exactly. Jesus. And it's described for us in Revelation 19 that there's an angel. He summons all the birds. He says, gather together to feast on the flesh of kings and captains and, and men, both free and slave and, and great and small. Uh, anybody who stands in opposition is going to be destroyed. And that is going to usher in. That's when Jesus is going to, boom, he's going to establish his kingdom. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And for that thousand year period, we are going to rule and reign with Jesus. That's what it says in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 20. There in verse 4, it says that we will be with him uh, along with the, the saints that were martyred in the tribulation period. And we're going to rule and we're going to reign with the Lord. And so... It's just a, a neat thing that, that we, we come to this point tonight where Paul reminds the Corinthian church, hey, while you guys are suing each other in, in, in the, the secular courts over these petty things, don't you know that someday you're going to judge the world and the angels? What does that look like, judge the angels? Like, hey, man, where were you when I was in the third grade and I broke my arm skateboarding? <laughs> where were you in football practice when I got the concussion? No, not that kind of judging. It's somehow we're going to, to, with the Lord, the Lord is the ultimate judge, but somehow we're going to judge the angels with, with, with God. But this will all be in this millennial reign period, which really is good. Because as I look at the world and I read the news headlines and, and we, we deal with the falling apart of society, it's very tempting for me to say, man, this is really frustrating. 
it's really tempting for me to get my eyes off the Lord. But it's just a reminder that, hey, listen, this is temporal. This is temporary. The Lord is coming back, and he's going to set things uh, straight. And so Paul says, you guys, uh, you know, deal with this stuff internally. You have the capacity. You're going to judge angels and, and the world someday. And then he kind of scolds him. He says, man, is there not a wise man in your midst? He's saying, man, you guys do better. You're doing this before the, the whole world. You're airing your dirty laundry, and, and it's not good. And he says, you guys have, have failed, you know, in, in dragging your arguments to secular court. You failed in, in blowing your witness to the community. Uh, you failed in not judging matters uh, wisely. And now he talks about this next failure in verse uh, 7. He says, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And so Paul says, not only did you guys make a mistake in not judging matters within yourself, not only did you guys make a huge mistake in, in, in airing your dirty laundry to the, the community and taking your lawsuits to, to the secular courts, but why not just accept being wronged? And I had to read that a couple times. I'll be honest with you. Paul says, why not just rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Just accept being offended, really, is what Paul is saying. Just uh, accept uh, being wronged, offended, forgive, and, and move on. Right? What did Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 5? He said, if somebody, I'll read it to you, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. He says, you have heard it said... Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Like, that was like if, if someone accidentally knocked out your tooth, you would go and you would knock out their tooth. What a terrible thing. I mean, I guess fair is fair, but I can't imagine wrestling with some kid and knocking out his tooth and then hearing a knock on the door. Hey, uh, your, your son knocked out my son's tooth. And be like, all right, let's knock it out. I'm sorry. Was, like, what a terrible thing. But that's the way it was. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus goes on, he says, hey, but if, if somebody, uh, but I tell you to, to not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if he wants to sue you and take your tunic away, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go two. Give to him who asks from you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Jesus says, listen, if someone slaps you on the cheek, and let him slap you on the other cheek. And the idea here, it's not like a right hook. This is not like you need to fight for your life. This is an offense. This is the glove, right, that comes off. I'm challenging you to a duel. It's like this offense. Jesus says if somebody offends you, just let them offend you. Be unoffendable. And he goes into all these different scenarios. If they sue you for your, your, your coat, give them your, your tunic too. Just say, oh, whatever. You're not going to bother me. If they want you to go a mile, go an extra mile. And you guys know how that works. In Jesus' day, Israel was occupied by Roman soldiers. Romans, they, they were the rulers. And a Roman soldier could 
come up to any Jew and be like, hey, you're carrying my stuff for a mile. They couldn't make him go any further than a mile. Could you imagine just like running errands like you're, you're headed to Walmart for a gallon of milk for your wife? And someone from the government was like, yo, yo, come here. You're going to carry all my stuff around for this next, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes. Jesus says, don't complain. Go the extra mile for free. Go two miles. Right? Everything about this whole topic rubs our carnal nature wrong. Right? To just be offended. Just let people, you know, you say, no way. I'm not going to let someone have a dig at me. That guy cut me off in traffic. I'm going to ride up on him. I'm going to flash my high beams, and I'm going to let him know what he did was wrong. The Bible says just let it go. Just walk in forgiveness. Now, why on earth would we do that? Why would we go the extra mile? Why would we forgive? Why would we just make up our minds to be unoffendable? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. See, in Matthew 18, Peter, you know, uh, Peter opens his mouth. Jesus was uh, just getting ready to, to teach on the parable of the unforgiving servant. And really, this is kind of spurred on by, by Peter's comment. Peter says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother in a single day? Seven times? Now, Peter was going to Jesus thinking that he was going to get a, a good noodle star, right? Lord, I'll forgive my brother seven times in one day. Well, good for you, Peter. Aren't you a forgiving disciple? Everybody look at Peter. What an example Peter is. But what did Jesus say to Peter? No, Peter, I'm sorry, but you need to forgive seven times 70. No, not just seven times, but seven times 70. Over and over and over and over again. And then Jesus tells this parable to uh, explain why. And Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went, and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if you, from your heart, do not forgive your brother his trespasses. And so Peter thought he was going to be just the hero of the day with all of his forgiveness. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you are not to keep track of how many times you forgive somebody. Why? Because of the great debt that I forgave you. See, in this parable that Jesus told, this, this one guy owed millions of dollars, this huge sum. And when it was time to pay the king, boy, he begged. And the king let him off the hook. That same dude who owed the king millions of dollars and was off the hook went out and found the guy who owed him 10 bucks and rang his neck. And when he didn't pay up, threw him in jail. That's what it's like when we don't forgive. 
Jesus has forgiven us the millions, and then we want to wring our brother's neck because he owes us 10 bucks. See, Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because Christ forgave us. That's why we forgive. Paul says, be unoffendable, be forgiving. That's the opposite of holding onto an offense, is just letting it go. And Paul says, you guys are all guilty. You've all cheated each other. And that's reality with us. We are all guilty. We all need forgiveness. And instead of insisting on our way, just forgive and, and, and trust the Lord. And nobody who, uh, you know, is cheated really is a loser when it comes to the Lord. If you are to say, hey, you know what? I would rather come out the loser for Jesus' name, uh, for Christ's sake, than to get my way at the detriment of my witness. Do you think that really in the end you will come out a loser? Do you not think that the Lord will take care of your needs? He absolutely will. He will always make it right. <clears throat> this has been a, a very uh, encouraging verse for me personally today. You know, over the last few days is I've been wrestling with just insurance, insurance, the insurance, insurance companies. You get a quote, and then you, you move forward uh, on a particular area, and then, and then all of a sudden that quote gets uh, multiplied by eight when the bill comes, and, and you call the insurance company and say, oh, well, we're just going to drop you anyway because we don't like California, and you're like, this is highway robbery, and, and you're like, well, let me talk to your boss, and you just start getting into this thing, right? When we can just step back and say, Lord, you know what? My life is in your hands, and I'm just going to give it to you. And you know what? The Lord does a better job than we will anyway. Now, Paul's saying, don't sue each other. It's a family matter. Just walk in forgiveness. Is there a time when we get Wapner involved? You guys remember Judge Wapner, People's Court? Trusty old uh, bailiff. What was his name? Rusty? I think it was Rusty. Yeah. Uh, there is a time to get the, the law involved. There just is. Uh, first of all, Paul's talking about small disputes within the church, but there is the matter of issues outside of the church. There is big issues. Remember, these are petty things. This is the, the gauntlet, whoosh, be offended. This is not life and death. Paul himself went to the Roman authorities, remember? He said, hey, I got rights. You guys can't do this. I'm, I need to talk to the, the Caesar. Let me talk to him. Uh, in Romans 13, Paul talks about the uh, authority structure that we have set up, that they are the ones that God has given in our lives to bring justice, right? As flawed as it is, we have the best justice system on the planet. I'm so grateful for that. The idea here, though, is to walk in forgiveness and not to get caught up in this sue-happy culture that we live in. You know that after, I talked about the, the McKinney fire on Sunday. You guys know that, it, like, the fire wasn't even out yet. And there was little trailers set up all over town. You guys probably saw them. They were lawyer things. Have you been affected by the fire? This is how you can jump on and sue whoever might be. And you just say, man, jumping on the, the, the Sue Happy Culture bandwagon. Uh, it's not a good situation. Uh, but again, this whole situation that Paul's talking about, this is, uh, this is not, uh, there are certain things that you will have to deal with in court. It's just put it that way. Uh, because, and that's important to know because some people say, oh, you're never to sue anybody if you're a Christian. Well, hey, listen, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we've been given uh, this 
uh, structure for justice, and we can use it just like Paul did. But Paul goes on to say, hey, listen, you guys have cheated each other. It takes two to tango. It's the one suing, but it's also the one who's doing the, the wrong, who's doing the cheating. And then Paul goes in this section and says, hey, don't take your sin lightly. And he names all these sins, fornicators, right? sex outside of marriage. Uh, we talked about this on Sunday when we dealt with sexual immorality. God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman, one life, period. That's it. That's where the blessing is found. Idolaters, uh, worship of a false god, uh, you know, putting anything or anybody in front of God. Uh, God giving somebody or something a higher position than God in your life, adulterers, effeminates, nor abusers of themselves. Uh, effeminate is also translated homosexuals. And uh, abusers of uh, themselves and mankind is translated in some translations as sodomites. Both of those things speak of homosexuality. And again, there's this move in the LGBTQAI plus community to say, that, hey, the Bible actually promotes homosexuality as long as it's a monogamous, loving relationship. But clearly, both of these words in the Greek are different Greeks, different words. They'll say, no, what Paul is talking about is just male prostitution. Well, there's two different words that are used here, and they both can be translated in homosexuality. One is male prostitute, but the sodomites is clearly uh, homosexual. So you take that for what it's worth. Uh, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, those who speak abusively is what revilers mean, nor extortioners, those who are aggressively greedy is what that word means in the Greek. None of those shall inherit the kingdom of God. You say, man, again, those are stern words. Does that mean if I've ever stole or lied or spoke abusively or been involved in sexual immorality that I'm just doomed for hell? That I will never inherit the kingdom of God? And again, what Paul is talking about here is not the person struggling, not the individual who has failed, but he's talking about the, the person who says, I don't care what God says. I'm going to continually, habitually, un, uh, apologetically, unrepentantly pursue these things with everything that I have. These are going to define me. I'm going to practice them. And again, like we talked about on Sunday, oh, what, what does it mean to practice? We want to get as good as we possibly can at something. That's what we're all about. And people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Again, is it that they were saved and then God said, nope, you've been too naughty, I'm taking it away? I don't believe that's the case. I believe that those who define themselves in those lifestyles were never saved to begin with. And I, I, I talked more on that on Sunday, and so I won't go into it uh, anymore today. But Paul says at the end of this list, he says, and such were some of you, right? Which just drives home that point. As such were some of you. Some of you were uh, into the homosexual lifestyle and to sexual immorality and were thieves and were covetous and were all the rest, but the Lord saved you out of that. Again, what a testimony to the goodness of God that no matter the sin, no matter our depth of entanglement, that there is always freedom and forgiveness available if we're willing to turn towards the Lord. And Paul goes on to say uh, that that the Lord has washed us, but you were washed. Washed. Though our sins were scarlet, they've been washed white as snow. That they've been, we've been sanctified. That the Lord is doing a, a work in our lives. That we're a work in progress. And that we're justified. Remember that we're justified. Just as though we've never sinned. That that's what the Lord has done with us. He's taken us out of those lifestyles. And you say, well, I wasn't involved in sexual immorality or drug abuse or anything. But remember what Jesus said. He said, man, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. If you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Right? It's not about just the external. We're all guilty of sin. 
All have fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And that is what is demonstrated in the life of uh, the Corinthians. And this last part, we're pretty much just going to read through because we covered it already on Sunday, but I don't want to leave it undone. So all, those, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify your body, or glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so, Paul, these last few verses, again, that we really covered uh, on Sunday, you know, he's dealing with the Corinthians who have taken their, their Christian liberty to a place that it was never intended to go. Remember, Paul was one who said, man, you're free. You're free from the law. You're free from your carnal nature. You're, you're, you're free from, you know, having to celebrate certain days. You're free from, you know, having to, to eat certain foods. And the Corinthian church says, yes, we're free to do whatever we want, including, uh, you know, temple prostitution. He says, oh, no, wait. Paul's like, hang on for a second. No, wait. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I could walk outside right now, and I could slam my fingers in my truck door. I'm allowed to do that. I can do that if I want. But it's not very profitable, is it? And Paul says, it's the same thing, right? We can sin and there's forgiveness for it, but it's not very profitable. Don't get sucked into that. And then the rest of this we, we did covered in, in depth on Sunday. We talked about sexual immorality and the importance of running for our lives. And you know, it's interesting. On Monday morning, I got a, a text from a brother. He said, hey man, I just want to let you know I appreciate the, the sermon on Sunday about running from sexual immorality. He just actually he said, I just want to thank you for the sermon on Sunday. He said, uh, I got my running shoes ready. And I said, oh, that's great. Amen. Like, right? The whole idea was that we flee sexual immorality, that we run. And so if you're curious about those last few verses, you can check out Sunday's sermon um, because I already taught on it. Uh, but for tonight, man, what a good word for us. You know, as we think about what our calling is as a church in our community, to be the salt and the light, to be a witness, and to be careful not to let our, our actions blow our witness, that we would continue on with the purposes that the Lord has, has called us to, and that we would be a church that walks in forgiveness, that we wouldn't be hung up on every single little offense that comes our way. It is so easy for us to dig in our heels and get hung up on the little things. But the Lord says, hey, you know what? Just be wronged, be offended, be cheated for my sake. Walk in forgiveness. And I tell you what, there's way more freedom than being cheated than there is hanging on to unforgiveness. All of those sins that we looked at, man, Paul says if, you, if, you're, if you're living in those things, and again, I would never want to give anybody the false impression to say, hey, you're covered. If you're living in any of those sins that Paul listed tonight, 
and you're not bothered by any of them whatsoever and those things define you? Time to do some self-examination. Like I said on Sunday, eternity is a precious thing to gamble. But what a beautiful thing, what a beautiful work the Lord has done in our lives where he's delivered us out of those sins, where he's washed us and he's sanctifying us and we've been justified just as though we've never sinned. And so, man, I hope we leave tonight just being encouraged that we're a work in progress, that where these corrections hit us square, that we wouldn't be bogged down with condemnation from the enemy, but that we would be encouraged by the conviction of, of the Holy Spirit to walk closer to the Lord. And so, Lord, thank you again for your word to the Corinthians. It really does hit home with us. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue to study through it, as uncomfortable as it might be at some times, Lord, that you would just do that work that needs to be done in our lives. We love you. We so appreciate who you are in our lives. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've saved us out of our past sins. And Lord, that you have a plan for us now in this world and a plan for heaven to give us a future and a hope, Lord. Help us to walk in all that you have for us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to, to be mindful that you're coming soon. And uh, Lord, that we would that we would be those who live our lives with purpose. That we're ready for our king to come home, to, to grab us and, and to take us. We love you. We praise you, Lord. Be with us as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.